The following is a podcast from St. George's Episcopal Church in Arlington, Virginia. We invite you to support the ministries of St. George's Church through a one-time or reoccurring donation. To give, visit our webpage, www.stgeorgeschurch.org. The word saint is spelled in full. St. George's is a vibrant and inclusive community that is committed to loving God, serving others, and changing the world. Make up your minds not to prepare your defense in advance. 
In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. And they said to Jesus, when will this be? We are now in the next to last Sunday in the church year. And this week, and in two weeks hence, the first Sunday in Advent, we have lessons which I think naturally occur that relate to time the end times, what lies before for us. In the late 1980s, I heard an extraordinary sermon on these lectures, these lessons, uh, in a church in Washington. It was at the Mission San Juan, the first Spanish language congregation in the area founded a year before San Jose began in this building, and there was a change of clergy. The um, person had left, somebody was to come, and a seminarian from Virginia Seminary was the continuing presence and invited a group of clergy who were Spanish-speaking to come and celebrate the Eucharist. And I came one of those Sundays, or several and heard the seminarian preach on this morning's lessons. It was interesting, and I was deeply impressed. The seminarian decided to turn the sermon on lessons about the end and portents and terrors and signs in the heavens into a dialogue sermon with the congregation, not knowing that the previous week a number of parishioners had been visited by pamphleteers who were Seventh-day Adventists and had distributed pamphlets that explained exactly when the world was going to come to an end <laughs> and uh, what signs were to be read in what way. But the seminarian was able to hold forth in excellent Spanish to explain the lessons and to relate to the questions that people had after reading those pamphlets. I thought, this is an extraordinary person who will have an extraordinary career, and indeed, she is now the Bishop of Washington, Marianne Edgar Buddy, and did a magnificent job. I'm not going to invite a dialogue <laughs> sermon today. I don't have the confidence and the ability of the Bishop of Washington but um, I think it's hard not to say something about time, given the time of the church year and given the events in our own national life in the past year. Signs of violence and anxiety in the land. They said to Jesus, when will this be? It's interesting that in Luke's gospel, unlike Matthew and Mark, we're not told exactly who they are who address this question. Matthew and Mark are very careful to let us know who was part of this conversation. 
Mark says it is the inner circle of the disciples. It is James and John, Peter and Andrew who hear this discussion. Matthew says it is privately said to the disciples only and not to anyone else. That's important in those gospels because when you come to the crucifixion, Jesus is convicted of two things, of blasphemy for implying that he is the Messiah and for domestic terrorism for, they claim, threatening that he will destroy the temple. And so Matthew and Mark, when they handle the gospel, are rather clear here that Jesus doesn't say that and that the only people who heard what he did say wouldn't have been likely to testify firsthand before the council. So they're kind of setting up the wrong charges against Jesus when he is arrested by the council and taken before the Sanhedrin. Luke doesn't do that, and the reason is pretty simple. In Luke's gospel, Jesus is convicted only of blasphemy, and the domestic terrorism charge is dropped out of the picture in his understanding of what happened after Jesus' arrest. But whatever the case, to whomever Jesus spoke, this lesson can strike modern readers as a kind of non sequitur. People are looking at a beautiful building. They're looking around at the stones and the offerings who are there, that are there. They're very excited. And Jesus immediately turns the conversation to death and destruction. Not one stone will be left on stone, he says, in response to comments. And the people immediately jump to, well, tell us everything that's going to happen. We know it's bad. Uh, give us the timetable of when this is going to happen. But for people in the first century Palestine, that would not have been a particular jump in logic. Because people knew what some people in the world still know is that a very common military strategy in conquest in the first century Palestine was the destruction of places of worship. You conquered an army, captured a city, and the next step was to destroy the people's hope. You leveled their temple and you executed or arrested and took in captivity their priesthood so that they would be utterly destroyed, destroy their hope, destroy their army. That's what the Assyrians had done to the northern kingdom of Israel. That's what the Babylonians had done in the city of Jerusalem. That's what the Romans would do in 70 AD. And the Greeks, when under Alexander the Great, they took control of Palestine, would do something related. They tried to turn the temple in Jerusalem to a place to worship Zeus, to try to destroy the hearts and the hope and the identity of the people. I suppose for Jesus and the disciples standing before the temple which had been rebuilt twice, which had been destroyed twice, which 
would soon be destroyed again, which was defamed by various invading people, their experience would be a little bit like standing before Coventry Cathedral in England, a beautiful medieval cathedral destroyed by German bombing in World War II, a new building set up beside it, but still signs of destruction there or maybe like a Texan standing before the Alamo, a attractive Franciscan-looking mission which was destroyed in the war for Texas autonomy and which was later rebuilt to look like it never was before it was destroyed. Another place looking at the location, there was a sense that something might well happen, a memory of violence and war, a sensitivity that yet indeed it might come. And indeed, in the 50 years after Luke's gospel is finished, the temple in Jerusalem is attacked twice as a result of Jewish opposition to Rome finally being utterly destroyed and Jews banned from living in Jerusalem around the year 120. Some commentators on scripture think that perhaps later editors took the Gospel of Luke and added the destruction of the temple here as a way to relate the book to modern times. There's no manuscript evidence. There's no earlier manuscript without this section. Um, but it is a guess about what might have happened. I think not. Because if you look at the production, at the prediction here of what's going to happen, it isn't a prediction of there's just going to be this one war and it's going to work in this way. There is a description of a cosmic event, an international event, something that touches everyone. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and plagues and there will be dreadful portents and great signs from the heavens. There will be signs in the sun, the moon, and the stars and on earth distress among nations confused by the roaring of the sea and the waves. The powers of the heavens will be shaken. This isn't, I think, a warning of a single, yet another conquest of Jerusalem. This is the blank news that there will come a day when human life will not persevere, where human history will come to an end. It's a rather strong prediction of what lies in our future. Biblical authors in the New Testament treat that news, which you'll find at various places in the Gospels and in the epistles, and particularly in the Revelation to John the Divine, the last book of the, of the New Testament, uh, treat it different ways. And I think Luke, from whom we've heard today, has a kind of assuring voice in the face of that. Years ago, when the Redskins occasionally won a football game, um, the, the, coach, uh, the coaches were uh, often recited 
a, uh, a phrase which became common in sports and um, is taken from a caricature of opera. It's not over till the fat lady sings. I guess the, the underlying thought here is that all operas end with a large woman with a name like Brunhilde singing something in the last scene, and therefore you can watch it not knowing where you are in the production until the fat lady sings and then you know it's come to an end. Not a particularly accurate portrayal of the broad expanse of opera. Luke has, I think, an underlying thought like that. He's telling us, in some ways, there will come an end, but don't worry, you'll know when it comes. It will be totally obvious. There'll be signs in the heavens, in the stars. It will be very clear. And in the meanwhile, don't worry. And he has an incongruous line that he borrows from Jesus' earlier sayings about anxiety. After talking about arrest and families breaking up and people being executed, he says, and don't worry, and people being put to death, don't worry, not a hair of your head will be lost. I think he's saying this, don't worry yourself about the timetable of the end of time. God has got that figured out, and God has that. Uh, later on, when we get to the first chapter of Acts of the Apostles, which Luke also wrote, the disciples still have the same question. When will this happen, Lord? They asked the risen Lord, and Jesus Christ answers back. That's not for you. You don't have to know God's timetable. God will figure that out. And so there is a kind of anxiety provoked and then answered. There's nothing you can do about God's timetable. That's in God's hands. What you can do is persevere in your faith, continue to be faithful, and know that God will watch over you. It's not worth getting a single gray hair worrying about divine numerology. God has got that figured out. So there is a reality. Human life will not last forever. There is a word of warning. Some things will be difficult. And then Jesus' word of comfort. Don't even worry a hair of your head about the end. It is all in God's hands. Persevere. Follow your faith. Share the good news. And live in the power of the Spirit. And they asked him, Lord, when will this be? Amen. Oh,